to the Quarantine Players Podcast. We are a group of writers, directors, and actors who had our productions canceled due to the pandemic. Each week, we'll read a new play and discuss it with a playwright, just like Shakespeare. We aspire to create new work during a global pandemic. Goodness gracious. Welcome to the Quarantine Players. Tonight, we have a reading of The Politics of Fabulousness, a new musical in development by uh, Judy Klaus, and we're very excited to partner with her on this production. So let's get started. Let's meet uh, Lori, our director. Hi, everyone. As AJ said, I'm Lori Molstein. I am the director for this show. Um, I have performed in a couple of Quarantine Players shows, and um, this isn't my first time directing, but my first time directing uh, with the quarantine players. So with that, I'm going to ask the cast just to uh, take themselves off of mute and put themselves on video and introduce themselves. So I'm going to start. Oh, and say where you're from. And say where you're from. Oh, and I am here in Fairfax, Virginia, and spend part of my time in San Diego, California, but I'm right here now in Fairfax. So I'm gonna to move to San Diego and go to Sarah. Yeah, hi, my name is Sarah Lucchini and I'm in sunny San Diego and uh, I'll be playing the character of Kay. Thank you, Sarah. And now we'll move on to um, Cameron and go ahead and introduce yourself and your character and where you're from. Hi, I'm Cameron Lee Conlon. Uh, I am also from the near the DC area. I'm from Manassas. I will be playing Gary. Thank you, Cameron. And um, Mike Young? Hi, uh, I'm Mike Young. Uh, I'm from Sterling, Virginia, and I will be playing Eton. Thanks, Mike. And Trevor? Hello, I'm Trevor Butler. I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, currently live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I will be playing Mr. Curtis. Thank you. And um, last but certainly not least, um, I'd like to introduce Judy Class. Judy, do you mind putting yourself on video and just saying hi? Um, no, or, you can, or you can just say uh, hi. Hello, I'm Judy. And I'm the playwright and I'm, I grew up in New York, New Jersey, and now I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming to my play. Play with Thanks, Judy. Judy. We're so delighted to be be performing your show tonight and uh, we hope everybody enjoys. So I think we'll go ahead and get started. Yeah. Yes. All right. Fine. It's fine. It's fine. If I was properly OCD, I would have done a better job cleaning than this. I'd actually get a fucking vacuum cleaner fixed. Why are you bothering to clean for her at all? If people come over for drinks, we clean a little. Yes, if my sister and her husband come to stay with us. You become get... the nervous, apologetic little brother, afraid of her temper, and it's sad to watch. Eitan, she's it. She's it. She's all the family I have at this point, and you said you'd try. You are foolish to believe me. You've mm. seen me at my worst, and as it happens, my worst was when I was friends with her. 
what smug, obnoxious 16-year-olds we were, laughing and sneering at everyone and breaking every promise we made, and what utter shits we were to you. Why would you want to bring all that back? As you say, you were 16 years old. I'm over it. Maybe you should get over it also. That's the biggest thing wrong with you, Gary. You're, you're too forgiving, too understanding with your witch harpy mother and your witch harpy sister. Hey, hey, my mother is dead and we don't talk about her that way. B, my sister is entirely different kind of witch harpy and you're wrong to complete the two of them. <laughs> and you're too understanding with me also. That's why selfish, vicious, willful, dishonest people like me and Kay take advantage of you. You invite it. You make it so easy for us. Why do you try so hard to make me see you as all those things? Listen to yourself, Gary. You're so loving and forgiving. You think I'm trying to hide my gentle, tender heart when all I'm doing is being honest. No, you're not, but go ahead. Strike a pose. Isn't that what Madonna told you people to do? I'm not old enough to remember Madonna telling <laughs> young people to vogue, you son of a bitch. See? I can hear how woman fuzzy you are underneath it all. By the way, are, are we sharing your alter ego with Kay? Are we taking her out to the bar to see you perform? We're playing at my ear. Do we really want to hear her turgid, politically formulated pronouncements on the act? Are we allowed to stand up to her and tell her to suck it if she disapproves? We hope She'll be open-minded and enjoy it. We hope she'll be proud and pleased, but, but we'll give her some time to relax yeah, and be our guest before we spring it on her. You really don't see that this is your mother all over again, with you soft-pedaling your identity and somehow hoping you'll get her blessing. Hey, Ton, one more time, she is all I've got left. It's part of my life, so if she stays with us, She'll probably learn about it, and I'm okay with that. You're setting yourself up for disappointment and heartbreak. You're playing out the same patterns again and again. Well, I ultimately reconnected with my mother, so, you know. Sure, that's... sure. She gave you permission to move back in and wipe drool off her chin and worse, and to coax her to take her pills and dress her and listen to her complain and give up your own life for a year. And all you had to do for such a great privilege was considerately hide every aspect of who you are that she couldn't bear to think about. And so now maybe you'll strike the same kind of bargain with your harpy viper sister. You know, Eitan, I don't think Kay wants me to feed her pills or hide who I am. I think she wants to reconnect. It's been a long time. It sure has. And now, finally, she's ready to step into the and now, And now, finally, she's ready to forgive me for eclipsing her and having the end with mom turn out to be all about me. What? Are you some kind of saint or victim or, or holy fool or something? She's ready to forgive you for being there for your mother every day for over a year while Kay was miles away and you took care of the most horrible phase in any child's life. From Kay's day. point of view, I eclipsed her. I performed the role that she might have liked to have performed. Uh, you invent these stories. Mom wouldn't have let her do it. They weren't talking and I stepped in. Look, it's, uh, it's complicated. 
Family's insane, so why try to understand someone else's family? You're setting yourself up for a weekend of horror. Oh, no, you're setting me up for a weekend of horror. You're the one making scenes. You've apparently got your heart set on making this whole thing awkward and grisly. Well, as you yourself admitted when we connected again, me and Kay are two of a kind. You are properly wary of me, and I freely admit, other than the fact that I have some poetry in my soul, and all she has in hers is steel wool and statistics, Kay and I were almost the same person at one point. You hooking up with me was a gargantuan act of masochism. Mm -hmm. So, according to your logic, if you're Kay, Kay is mom, that puts you in the mom role, so do me a favor, mom, and put a sock in it for the duration. I mean it. I'll be lovely to her. I'll be a perfect gentleman. God. There is no God. I, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. It'll be a charming weekend. We'll, we'll all have a wonderful time. Uh, what condition is the bathroom in? Um, I mean, ours. I mean, the main one I've spruced up. I think the, uh, the guest one. It's it's functional. Functional. I cleaned it on Tuesday, so maybe I can just give it another. Maybe. How one. harshly were you toilet trained? Did Kay and your mother supervise the process together? Did they stand over you and make critical remarks? Maybe. I don't. I don't remember. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like something they would have done. They probably had Margarita do it. Margarita, yeah. I could use one right about now. I wish I could have Margarita around every day of my life. Well, she was perfectly nice. Well, she's dead. Yeah. I wonder if Kay knows. I wonder if Kay would care. What about the kitchen? Um, yeah, I can, maybe, maybe I should. The doorbell I, rings. Too late. Saved by the bell from a cleaning jag. <laughs> you were the saved by the bell generation. <laughs> Me and Kay. It's good to have some identity. Harry goes to the door. Hey, you found it. We found it. It's good to see you guys. Was parking okay? He comes back in with Kay and Curtis. Curtis carries the bags for both of them. Yeah, right up front. No, not so bad around here. I like this street. Yeah, we like it too. Most, most of the residential, but there's little dumpling fusion place down the block. Thought that looked promising. Hey, Aton, how are you? Doing all right, Kay. It's good to see you. This is Curtis. Who are you? Yes. So you rented a car, right? Uh, yeah, it's a nice little car. Hey, uh, listen, Gary. Yeah. Um, are we going to be staying in here? Because I can just put the bags by the Oh, car. oh, no, Dot. Crap, no, sorry. This, this isn't a fallout situation. Uh, let me show you where your room is. You guys are going to be right down the hall and on the left. Got it. Sounds good. Curtis exits. Curtis drove us, of course. <laughs> I get freaked out outside my comfort zone. I hate airports and dislocation. And I don't like driving a car that's not mine in a city I don't know. <laughs> He seems to take very good care of you. He does take very good care of me. I wasn't trying to. It doesn't matter. It's okay. I don't, I don't care if you're trying to be snarky or not. Um, it's true that Curtis takes very good care of me. 
well, you should let us take care of you guys for a few days. We, I can, we can whip something up, kind of dinner right here, or we can check out the dumpling shop. Oh, either sounds great. Uh, maybe dumplings. Mm-hmm. Marillion is such a parochial little college town. They're kind of hurting when it comes to Chinese food. Well, Kansas City isn't really known for its Asian food either, but the dumpling place is decent. Yeah, that's a nice little room. Yeah, we've had a few guests tell us the bed's actually pretty comfortable. And those clothes on the bed, are those you want to give Kay? I'm not sure they fit her. What clothes on the bed? There's like a skirt and top all covered with spangles. Why? Why would those have been on, on the bed? I, I, I wasn't, it wasn't on the bed 20 minutes ago when I was last in the room. Whoops, I, I guess it's something I left there. It's something I've been sewing. You know, I should have put it away. Really? You, you've taken up sewing, Eitan? It's wonderful, the things you can create. I'm very proud of that ensemble with the beadwork and- Do you sell the clothes you make? Oh no, I'm afraid they're not for sale. So, have you become a transgender person? No, they're not for me either. Who's it for me? Kay. I I dress in drag sometimes and I sing in a cabaret act. I was probably going to tell you about it at some point this weekend, but it seems Aton has decided to fuck with me a little bit and start things off with a bang. (laughs) That would... Sound very much in character for Eitan. Mm, very much. I'm so sorry. I'll go get my things off of your bed. He exits. So, Gary sings in drag and you make all of his outfits? Oh, he helps design them and, and we write the songs together. Oh, so he's not doing cover tunes? Oh, no, no. It's, it's an all original act. Well, great. Yes, it is great. He's wonderful. Does he have a stage name? Does, it's Ovaria Strange. That's precious. I'm glad you like it. And what is it that you do these days, Eitan? Oh, um, I, I play second violin in a symphony orchestra and that doesn't pay the bills. So I also teach music at a high school. Same school as Gary? No, no, no. He's middle school, fifth grade this year. 30 kids in the class. Yes, uh, middle school. That's right. Gary enters. Okay, so the stuff is out of your room, and hopefully nothing else that's odd or out of place will be surfacing in there. Will it, Eitan? Absolutely not. Great. Well, maybe we'll just take a moment to freshen up. Oh, yeah, sure. There's a bathroom right off the guest room. It's got a shower and everything. Awesome. Kay and Curtis exit. Let's reconvene in 40 minutes or whenever for a dumpling run. Why? You get so closety around women in your family. (laughs) You said that you wouldn't. I said I wouldn't be rude. Mm. I wouldn't attack her. And I haven't. No, but you wanted to create tension. You were looking to make trouble. You were looking to ruin things. Why are you so ashamed of who you are after all of these years? Don't, don't pretend. This is about being queer and proud or about empowering me and liberating me from my family or whatever, all the horseshit. Your motives are even close to that noble. No. See, 
At mm. least you're learning. I'm a bastard, just like K. Mm. Lights down, end of scene one. Scene two, lights up on the guest room. It contains a double bed and a comforter. The bags Curtis carried her by the bed. Curtis sits on the bed going through things in his bag, KP. It was a bad idea. It's not worth the money we're saving. Um, yeah, you may be forgetting how much the hotel rooms cost. I know, that was ridiculous. That's their idea of a bargain rate for those who are not only attending, but speaking at the conference? Your, your brother seems to be trying. Sure, Gary means well, but why let Aton back into my life? Why give him a chance to mess with me? Ah, laugh it off. Don't let him get to you. And I'm not sure how I feel about this drag business. Do you ever watch RuPaul's Drag Race? RuPaul does NASCAR stuff? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're seriously asking. On Logo, the, the gay channel. It's like Project Runway, but for gay men and drag. Can't say I've seen it. Well, I hate it. It's so insipid and shallow. I hate every female wannabe on the show, and I wind up hating RuPaul. But don't you also hate Pro Project Runway? Well, sure. So this only proves you don't like reality shows. Hey, I like Animal Cops Houston. On Animal Planet. Right. I just think that the animal cops and the vets and, and even the dogs and cats and horses have so much more depth and self-awareness and poetry in their souls than any Kardashian, including Kate, who thinks that what makes someone a woman is wearing nail polish long enough for it to chip. More than any real housewife. But if Animal Cops is the only one you can handle, don't hold it against your brother that there's a scripted fake reality show about men in dresses that you're not into. But it makes Logo as, as a station so degrading in a way for gay men, the way BET is for people of color, you know? Like, like it's so intentionally designed to thwart its own potential and possibilities and be superficial and reinforce caricatured stereotypes. And it's not just that it's a reality show, it, it's grating. I watch those men dressing up as divas, sometimes mansplaining to biological women how to be more feminine or vampy and mocking us, <laughs> reiterating all those tired old campy tropes, tossing off these bitchy, supposedly witty comments to each other. I, oh, I just feel my blood boil. Well, maybe we don't tell your brother you feel that way. Oh, no, I mean, obviously, of course not. Especially if Aton is trying to sabotage his visit and make trouble between you and Gary. Why take the bait? Why allow, why allow him to do that? You're right. Why give him the opening? Especially when my views on the subject are absolutely verboten now. Aton would, Aton would tear me apart, limb from limb, like I was J.K. Rowling. Huh. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, what she said. What Rowling said about trans people. Well, I don't think it's half as bad as people say it is. You know, I've never read her letter or whatever it was. <laughs> I've only seen summaries. Well, she sure didn't deserve to be canceled for it and having all the Harry Potter people condemn her. She didn't deserve to be called a turf. Called a what? A, a, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. She said that when she was geeky and young, she wasn't happy with the role society gave to females, so she figures 
she might have seen herself as trans if people declared it all the time back then the way they do now. Mm. She worries that young women think they're trans now and start treatment to transition. And if they change their mind later, they can't have children. She said a ton of girls are suddenly deciding they're trans, sometimes in groups of friends and transitioning and detransitioning. A lot of them grow out of their gender dysphoria. That sounds messed up. And she supports research into MS, which affects men and women differently. And she wants to prevent erosion of the distinction between the sexes in medical research. She, she lives in Scotland where a guy can just say he's a woman without long-term counseling or surgery or taking hormones. And right away, legally, he is one. And that makes her uncomfortable. That she might be in a woman's locker room or a dorm for a woman's conference or a women's camping ground. And any guy who wants to register as a woman can go there. Yeah, but that, that doesn't happen. I mean, straight sexual predators saying that they're women? There were those commercials about the bathrooms. In Houston. Yeah, with the guy in the plaid shirt following a little girl into the public bathroom just because trans people were getting rights. Sure. Yes, those were scary and misleading ads. But Rowley, Rowling, you know, expressed empathy with trans women who got battered and raped and killed, saying she's a survivor of assault. And she says she, she and she says she knows the violence she experienced years ago makes her funny in the head about stuff like that. She just thinks that women have a right to single sex spaces without people who have penises being there. She makes it clear she's not sure that's rational. Okay. She just wants to stand up for people who were born women as, as a class and in a group that gets kicked around the way gay people and trans people do. But the people she tried to talk to couldn't hear that. And God knows Aton would. He'd be salivating at a chance to go after me if he finds out I have even mixed feelings about this. He's just looking for something like this to exploit. Do coming in, what his MO would be? It was my MO too once. They imprinted on each other during our most insufferable teenage years. Yeah, well, you are brewing. Mm, not entirely. It's nice that your brother and this guy, you know, that they're happy and they're doing creative stuff together, even if you think it's shallow. Well, Aton was always on the lookout for someone to collaborate with. <laughs> when we were in high school, we were going to write a world-shattering rock musical together. <laughs> Lyrics by me, music by him. It was going to be some Bonnie and Clyde update about two ruthless, clever people, maybe in high school, maybe older, out in the art world who destroy the people in power and help the tortured weaklings. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> in our minds, we'd be heroic revolutionaries, but really it would have just been an excuse for us to be sadistic and superior. You got any songs from it you can show me? <laughs> nope, not even one. I am not a lyricist or any kind of artist. That was when I was starting to realize that I, I can write about texts or and analyze them, but I can't create them. I wonder if my brother can. It's not a competition. No, it's not. You, you gotta let all this stuff go. Don't worry, Curtis. It's been a long time since I dreamed of writing a rock and roll musical. You wanna take a shower? 
Mm, no, I'm I'm good. I'll wash my face. I'm gonna comb through my hair. How about a little back rub to help you relax? Mm, that sounds perfect. Okay. Whoa, big knots you got back there. Lots of tension. You gotta work it on out. Mm, thank you, baby. That really helps. Yeah, it does. Along with Zen thoughts. Mm, zen thoughts. <laughs> and then I can serenely eat my dumplings and let Aton snark away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's down, end of scene two. Scene three, lights come up. Gary's standing alone near the edge of the stage. He addresses the audience. Margarita lived with us and I liked to hide out in her room. After dad left, my mom was so depressed, she kind of shut down and she was never a warm and fuzzy mom, you know, never a hugger to begin with. So Margarita was raising me at that point more than ever. Kay didn't have much use for her. Margarita taught me Espanol. She had a warm Dominican accent, but Kay could never really be bothered to learn, and that was fine. Spanish became our secret language. Margarita didn't mind if I hid out in her room when she wasn't there. I liked her closet best. My mother's clothes were all beige and gray and preppy and tasteful, and mostly just harsh to touch. You know, working at the bank, she wore linen blouses and tweed skirts and all these scratchy wool things with a sensible strand of pearls. Margarita's clothes were soft cotton and nylon and polyester and taffeta, and they were all in these vibrant sunset colors, orange and red and yellow, burgundy, hot pink and violet in this exploding sunburst combination. When I was small, when it, I could just stand up in that closet and be lost in those dresses. They smelled like her perfume. And some of them had uh, fun stuff hanging on that, like clink and clink. When she eventually found me in there with the dress part way on, she thought it was strange, maybe, but she didn't kick me out. And when she found out, you know, that I was at her vanity, trying on her makeup. That was also in all those bright, wild colors. She worried she might get fired, but she wasn't out con to condemn me or betray me. When I was a teen, when Kate was off at college and mom was gone for hours, Margarita eventually became okay with me trying on the clothes and the makeup. And I was someone else. I could escape from that cold, nasty house and be fabulous. Hablando mi otra idioma y escuchando a mi propia música en la radio. Open mi mente. Just lost in a world of my own. <laughs> there are worse ways to get through adolescence, I guess. Lights down, end of scene three. Scene four, lights come up in the living room area. The meal is winding down. 
Curtis and Kay sit on the couch and Gary and Aton sit on the floor. Everyone has chopsticks and water or soda to drink. Plates hold a few last pot stickers are on the table along with dipping sauce. And you can really imagine spending your lives in that town. Well, downtown Marillion isn't all that exciting, but you get a few interesting shops in a college town. And since tenure track jobs aren't easy to come by, if I do get tenure, it's hard to imagine giving it up and going back to adjunct hell. <laughs> That's fair. And do you like it there, Curtis? Yeah, I pretty much got our house in shape. We're renting, but we could buy. I've been making little improvements to the property, you know, so it would be a good investment. I got some ideas about changing up the house itself. And I've got some steady clients in the area now. You tend their gardens for them, uh, prune their hedges? Well, it's usually a lot more than that. Uh, people come to me and ask me to reconceive all of their outdoor space. Japanese rock gardens, gazebos, a copse of trees, water running through the property. Well, it sounds like you got some pretty rich people out there. Those are usually the ones who give me a call. You know, well, some people are one-offs. They just need some emergency garden therapy. Huh. And um, what is it exactly that you're teaching these days, Kay? I teach for two programs, uh, Women and Gender Studies and African American Studies. But I teach some interdisciplinary courses that appeal to students involved with both. There's actually a lot of theoretical overlap. Is that right? Because I've been wondering how you wound up teaching African American Studies. And... Well, my first book was about Fanny Hurst. Who? Fanny Hurst. She was a very popular writer in the early 20th century till she went out of fashion. She wrote Imitation of Life. What's that? Well, did you ever see it as a film? There are two versions, one from the 30s with Claudette Colbert and Louise Beavers, and then the Douglas Sirk one from 1959 with Lana Turner and Juanita Moore. Nope, sorry. You've never seen that film? No. Damn, like when I was growing up, the women in my family all liked to watch that. Every time it came on TV, the ending, the funeral scene, my moms used to really tear up at that. Yeah, yeah, I think I've seen the Douglas Sirk one. Uh, didn't it have Gidget as the obnoxious blonde daughter? Sandra D. yes. Yeah, then I have seen it. And I believe there was a drag parody of it. Imitation of Imitation of Life, it was called. Well, there have been a lot of parodies of it. Langston, uh, Langston Hughes wrote one called The Limitations of Life back in the 1930s, where a rich woman is black and she has an Oxford accent and her servile mammy-like maid is a white woman who wouldn't dream of accepting her fair share of profits from the business she's helped the rich woman build. It was a pretty biting satire, though Langston considered Fanny Hurst a friend to some degree. Well, you know, you can't be thin-skinned when your friends parody you. So in my doctoral dissertation, which became my first book, I examined the politics of that novel, how well-intentioned Hearst was, how progressive she saw herself as being, but still all the privileging binaries of our cultural discourse she was drawing on, reinforcing the ermith of the devoted mammy figure, taking care of a white family, and then the politics of the plot about the daughter trying to pass as white, uh, the old melodramatic trope of the person with one drop of black blood. Wait, wait, I'm confused now. Sandra D plays the black person? No, I mean the other daughter, 
the black woman's daughter. Sandra D plays Lana Turner's daughter, out to steal her mother's man, and they're both blonde Hellcats. Okay. Yeah, well, that's Douglas Cirque for you. Punish a woman for being a single working mother with ambition. Turn her into a grasping, selfish monster who earns the audience's disapproval. I, I know I'm supposed to see his films as playing with artifice and, and deconstructing gender roles, all ironic, like a Roy Lichtenstein painting or a Cindy Sherman movie still, but I'm not convinced. Anyhow, the novel doesn't posit the mother in such a negative light, exactly. I mean, in the novel, the daughter does get the man, so in a sense, the mother is punished for stepping outside the traditional female sphere and desiring a younger, less powerful male but the novel is sympathetic to her. She's more of a tragic figure. So this writer. Fanny Hurst. Mm -hmm. Fanny Hurst is a great overlooked author that you're helping to rediscover? She wasn't overlooked in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. She was one of the most famous writers in the country. And then modernism came along and the ideal of the macho, Ernest Hemingway kind of writer. And so Hurst was dismissed by critics as being too female and emotional and apolitical. But of course she wasn't apolitical, she was a feminist. But the male critics ignored that. Just like Richard Wright dismissed Zora as apolitical, he had no use for feminism either. Zora. Oh, uh, Zora. Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, she wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God. Oh, yes, of course, Zora. Uh, I'm just not familiar with her on a first name basis. <laughs> uh, she was good friends with Fanny Hurst as it happens, but the friendship was complicated. But it's great that you're helping bring back this wonderful person and her book. Well, you know, I wish I could say that. People write mean songs about her. <laughs> Mel Brooks has a song in a movie, um, hope for the best, expect the worst. You could be Tolstoy or Fanny Hurst. Mm -hmm. Mike Nichols and some guy had a song in a review, Your Kippers and Caviar, I'm Liverwurst, You're Shakespeare, uh, You're Shaw, I'm Fanny Hurst. Something like that. Uh, I wish I could say they were wrong. So she's terrible. She's not terrible. She builds elaborate plots with lots of momentum. She tackled social issues that others were afraid of. But her prose is excrement. No, not excrement. A few mixed metaphors, some repetition, some unlikely scenarios, and not so accurate phrases. So she's deservedly forgotten. She opens a window on another time in American history, both the aesthetics of that moment and the sociopolitical realities. And she's valuable for that. Well, anyhow, uh, I wrote about her and Imitation of Life, especially, and an academic press put out my book. And Marillion is a small college. They like people who can pitch it in uh, several departments. Then they were looking to expand both women and gender studies and African-American studies. And I applied at the right time. Well, that's great. It's great that you got tenure track. I mean, teaching school kids is rough enough now in some ways, but it's nothing like what I hear the job market is for college professors. <laughs> yes, the job, job market sucks. Uh, I got lucky. And you're continuing to work this angle. Is your talk at the conference tomorrow on Fanny Hurst? She only comes up once in the paper I'm giving because she was friends with Zora and Langston. 
It'll be on a postmodernism and gender panel and one on Langston's influence on Afro-Caribbean writers. But the, the paper I'm giving is on Mule Bone. That's a play that uh, Langston and Zora wrote. Mule Bone. Yes, it wasn't produced until 60 years after they wrote it. There's a whole falling out over it. It destroyed their friendship. With Fanny Hurst. With each other. Zora claimed she wrote it by herself. She copyrighted it in her name. We have a lot of angry correspondence between them and third party accounts. Kind of a mystery about what happened. It had to do with Charlotte Osgood Manson, a, a rich older white woman who's a patron to both of them. She made all the Harlem Renaissance writers um, call, she, that she gave money to and advise. She had them all call her godmother. <laughs> and Alan Locke, he was another one of her godchildren. He was generally pretty openly and cheerfully misogynistic. Uh, but in this case, he helped Zora shut Langston out of Godmother's good graces. Perhaps because Langston had spurned him romantically, but we can't know these things for sure. Had Langston spurned Zora romantically? Well, they had known each other for years. They had traveled through the South together. Zora said she loved him like a brother. It's hard to know. There was another woman involved, Louise Thompson. She was paid a little by Godmother to type for Langston and Zora when they were boarders in a house in New Jersey. Uh, but she wasn't paid to type, a, paid to type the play. The, the play was a secret because Godmother did, didn't approve. So Langston suggested cutting Louise in for some of the profits or making her the play's business manager. Zora felt uh, Louise and Langston were conspiring behind her back. Um, she overreacted. Carlo thought Zora was jealous of Louise. Carl Van Vechten, that is. He was another one of the rich white people Zora and Wallace Thurman called um, Negrotarians. They were all about helping promoting Negro artists. He spent a lot of time uptown and he wrote a sort of infamous novel. Um, Negro heaven. Yeah, <laughs> about Harlem. A lot of people were offended by the title and the way it made life uptown sound wild. But Zora and Langston both liked that book. Langston just thought it was a poorly chosen title, just like his own book of poems, Fine Clothes to the Jew. Fine Clothes to the Jew? Yes, he meant a pawn shop. Relax, Eitan. Langston liked Jews. His high school buddies in Cleveland were Jews. He was one eighth Jewish himself. Mm. Was Langston Hughes gay? The jury's still out. His biographer, Arnold Rompersad, thought he had more of a kind of Michael Jackson thing going on. Excuse me? I, I just mean in the sense that he presented himself at all times as childlike and innocent and naive. He saw himself as a kind of Peter Pan. Most of his friends never figured out what his sexuality was it, or if he had one. Most of the guys involved in the Harlem Renaissance were gay. Most of the, uh, well... <laughs> Zora and Thurman came up for, with a name for the whole group of them. The Nigurati. Right. That was their ironic spin on literati. That's very tactful how he does that for you. Do you get up and do that for her when she presents a paper too? No, I do not. There's no need. Uh, those terms don't come up in my paper. Anyhow, most of the guys were gay. Locke and Thurman himself who was actually married to Louise Thompson for a while before she found out. 
and County Cullen and Claude McKay and Carlo, who hung out in Harlem a lot. Langston may have played mind games with Locke and uh, Cullen and maybe even Zora. Who knows? He was never involved with Louise. So Zora wasn't gay. Well, uh, she might have had a thing for a while with Ethel Waters. She wrote some ambiguous things about her, but not primarily. Well, it sounds like quite a little Peyton place. Yes, but obviously I don't get into all that in my paper. Well, that's too bad. What do you get into? Well, if you really want to hear about it. Oh, I do. <laughs> I do. I look at what Zora and Langston were trying to achieve in Mulebone. In terms of reconceiving ethnography, uh, well, Zora trained as an anthropologist under Franz Boas at Columbia when she was a Barnard student. Uh, she went down south to gather songs and folklore and examples of local idiom. She studied how to conjure, but ultimately she eschewed the illusion of objectivity in social science. And she deliberately blurred distinctions between different kinds of texts, um, the scholarly and creative, for example. Even in her scholarly work, she embraced subjectivity and reflexivity. What, and she had good reflexes, you mean? She recognized that she brought her own subjective views to her research, and she acknowledged that her presence in a room full of people she was observing affected what happened in that room. Aha! Well, couldn't you have just said that? I just did. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, I couldn't keep up. For a moment, it just sounded like a jumble of jargon and bullshit theory to me. I'll try to dumb things down for you. Thanks so much. So uh, your paper's about anthropology. Well, it's also about the play and the socioeconomic, uh, about the various pressures that led to the breach between Langston and Zora as the Great Depression started. I'm looking at the dialogic in a sense, their text, their, their play, is in a dialogue with other texts, but also with the actual events in their lives. And so I look at that in the paper. The dialectic of the real and imagined worlds. The, the, the dialectical, dialogical dialogue. <laughs> if you'd like. It actually sounds really interesting. Okay, I, I don't know about any of that stuff. It's actually kind of amazing how much I don't know about the Harlem Renaissance. I probably know a few links in here's poems. A dream, a dream deferred is a raisin in the sun. Something like that. that nope, that's about it. They're both really good writers, Langston and Zora. Mm -hmm. It was a shame they had such an ugly falling out. But uh, Aton may be right. Enough about my silly postmodernist theory. Tell me about the character you become when you go to drag clubs, Gary. Uh, is it the same character every time? Well, it, <clears throat> it's evolving. She's becoming less glitzy and sexy, more of a country singer. Uh, we, we may have to do away with the name Ovaria Strange. May end up calling her uh, Tammy something. Miss you, Ray. Yeah. I guess you weren't aware that I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Just a touch of it, which has messed with my fertility in a big way and my health in some others. So I guess I don't find it rip-roaringly funny that you call yourself ovaria strange, but 
you know, whatever. A, they could not have known that. No, we, we didn't know that, but, uh, you know, because it's further incentive to, for us to look around for a new name for the character. But not a reason for us to panic or apologize since we didn't know anything about it. So, Gary, uh, you're into country music? Oh, we aren't necessarily. But Ovaria is. The character is. Uh, could we hear one of your songs? Now? I'm really curious. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I rehearse here with Atom, but when I perform as Ovaria, as the character, I, I normally get into costume. And well, let's just see sh- how you rehearse. Just keep it informal. You could try the Idaho song. It needs work. We could use the feedback. Really? I'd rather play something we've got polish and feel strong about. Ah, uh, they'll say what they think, and then we can polish it up, or or give it a, or give it the axe. It song goes to the piano. Are you shocked to find me dressing like a hoe? I was all buttoned up not long ago. I sure was different when you last were in this state. But you've come back much too late. You came through Idaho and told me pretty lies. You took my innocence, left me cold with old french fries. My dream was a spud that proved a dud. I yielded, love was blind, but Idaho, you left behind. Now my reputation's down the drain. You mashed my hopes and filled my heart with pain. I got the name, so I got the game. I turned tricks on the side. I'm salty thanks to all the tears I've cried. You came through Idaho and told me pretty lies. You took my innocence, left me cold with old french fries. Once I was your hot little tater tot, you seemed so warm and kind, but Idaho, you left behind. Every potato has its eye. Every ruined bad girl can thank one skanky guy. Idaho and told me pretty lies. You took my innocence, left me cold old old french fries. Now I'm loaded and baked full of meth, you snake, and I bet that you don't mind that. Idaho, 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 you left behind. <laughs> That's cute. That's cute. I like that. Well, it doesn't sound un- unpolished, as you said. It's, it sounds like the two of you have really worked on it. Yeah, yeah I eh, I pretty much think it is what it is at, at this point, you know, for better or worse. I see that you're you're not just making fun of women. It, it It's out, it's people out in rural America, too, that you're going after. Uh, here we go. That's my K. Here it comes. We're not going after anybody. It's a silly little novelty song. But the source of the humor is to look down your nose and mock a few different groups. 
young women who get used by the first men they date and people who live in an unglamorous state like Idaho. The source of the humor is a ridiculous pun on the word Idaho. I did get that, yes. And a bunch, a bunch, a bushel of potato metaphors, which I don't usually come up in broken-hearted love songs, but they do here because people associate potatoes with the state, Idaho. That's about it, really. See, Gary, why are you wasting your time trying to explain a funny song to an essentially humorless person like your sister? She'll only analyze it for the dialectical, ethnographic reflexivity. I'm more likely to analyze it as a big old Aton sneer writ large. I'm just curious about all the different kinds of people you're sneering at. And, and yeah, I guess I don't see the humor in sneering anymore, so I am pretty humorless in this context. Look, it's not at all that funny of a song. It's certainly not an attack on women. Well, no more than drag is generally. Come again? I mean, in some sense, drag is obviously a parody of women, of the female. That's the whole point. Whether it says something about the kind of intrinsic misogyny in gay culture in general or not. Hooray! No more holding back, homophobic, uptight man-haters. Start your engines. Of course, I don't for a minute pretend that all gay men are as misogynist as you are, Aton. Or very few of them, in fact. But if we look at the names drag queens take, if we look at the jokes and, and the behavior, we can see a grotesque, exaggerated male view of the female. Hey, 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 and hey, take it easy. I know, I know I said I wouldn't, but this is beyond the issue of Aton winding me up. I'm just curious about what my brother thinks he's doing here. What I'm doing is, <clears throat> what I'm doing is expressing something inside of me that has no other outlet. Something that perhaps I was born with or that I learned from Margarita, or something positive that celebrates the feminine. <sighs> it's so sad that you can't see that. I mean, you only heard one song and you've not seen me in that persona. As Ovaria Strain. You haven't seen me transformed, but it does feel like a transformation. And there are men, men who are a whole lot more inhibited and repressed than I am. And after growing up in the home, I certainly do have my inhibited and repressed side. Yes, so do I. That, that has nothing to do with gender. But I'm saying, I'm saying there are men who think being a real man means you never flirt or make certain jokes, never cry or show love or pain or empathy or compassion in public. And, and, and they are able to not only express, but to even access in the first place, all those feelings through cross-dressing. And still you, you have to go and project ugliness and anger onto it. I mean, I'm sorry, Kay, but couldn't, couldn't that say more about you than it does about drag? <laughs> you know, uh, white men in minstrel shows felt oh. the same way about what they were expressing. That's one reason Langston and Zora wrote Mulebone to counterbalance vaudeville shows by whites that depicted blacks in overalls singing happy songs out in the fields and to get past white performers with cork on their faces. Someone like Al Jolson, he, he felt he was accessing an innocent, primitive, joyful side of himself when he put on black face, expressing emotions that he usually kept inside. Those men in 1880 or 1900 or 1920 could be 
sexual once they corked up and moved to syncopated songs. They could laugh, cry like children, sing about Mammy. They felt transformed. They felt so authentic. And yet they weren't really black men at all. They just thought they were. And that's what you think drag is, a minstrel show? Could you explain to me the difference? Sure, Kay, I'd be glad to, only, wow, uh, this is impressive even for you. Level of closed-mindedness and willful ignorance. Where to start? Okay, let's see. There are some people who are born with both a penis and a vagina. Some choose to keep both. Some others choose to be male, and some choose to be female and have one set of organs removed. Are they wrong when they do that? Are they part of a minstrel show? There are also biracial people. They, they don't really have to choose to be one thing or another anymore. People don't pass like they do that girl in imitation of life. People don't play down some part of their ethnic or racial origin? Some people may, and if they do, they're probably limiting themselves, but... It's none of my business what people do. None of this their... is any of your business. People should be whoever they want to be. But let me ask you this. What about people who are born biologically male or biologically female who go through life from early childhood sensing that the gender assigned to them is wrong? It's an accident of nature. Some of them go through painful, radical surgery in order to change genders. And those people are even more vulnerable to discrimination and hate crimes than the average gay guys like Gary and me. They get murdered at astonishingly high rates, especially transgender women of color. Are you fucking kidding me that I have to explain all this to you? And as it happens, those people are under siege, persecuted by smug, righteous, straight, cisgender people like yourself, you and J.K. Rowling. Oh, here we go. You called it. I know, right? Uh, what is this? Some sort of adorable private joke that you're sharing? No, we just... Never mind. As I was saying, people who face that kind of discrimination and violence have it pretty tough. But, oh no, maybe it's a game. Maybe I'm wrong. They're all privileged vaudevillians just grinning and waving their hands in white gloves and singing and dancing in a minstrel show. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you tell your students in women and gender studies class, that there's no such thing as a transgendered person? It's all made up? I never said anything like that. What you did! If you really see drag as a minstrel show, as a game, I don't think there were too many white guys in 1910 who felt a biological need to be black. That was the main form of entertainment, so that's what they did, and that's all. So, so my brother feels a biological need to dress up in drag? Your brother may have some kind of need, yes. He may have an androgynous side he wants to explore. Lots of people do. Look. We're conflating a number of things here. Gender and race are both social constructs. They're both metaphors, but our bodies are also marked in real terms by gender and race. Would that be the dialectic of the real and the imaginary? You're damned right. And yes, gender may be more mutable and complicated than race in biological terms, but let's not ignore the sociological side of this. We do live in a society where men occupy positions of power and privilege and generally control media and entertainment and the cultural narrative, just as white people did in the 20th century, and where women are also subject to harassment and violence. And it is a kind of game 
for men to dress up as women and appropriate our voices and images and parody us, parody us still as it was for whites to put on black face and do the buck and wing or play bones and tambo a hundred years ago. The paradigms are similar. You're being willfully ignorant if you pretend not to see that, just as you're being dishonest if you ignore the misogynistic aspects of drag. The misogynist aspects of some drag acts, Kay. Let's not make sweeping generalizations. It's true there may be some drag queens who share my general lack of patience with the way some biological women behave, but then there are people like Gary, who have nothing against women, however much justification there would be given the women in his family for him to morph into a raving misogynistic serial killer. Thank you so much. That's almost redundant, by the way, given how many serial killers are raving misogynists. But how about acknowledging for once the position of power and sense of entitlement men feel in relation to women, whether the men decide to dress up and identify as women or not. Really, Kay? Again, how can I get through to you about this? Men in drag and transgender women have very little power in our society. They're lucky to get through high school alive. Government pushes back on their rather humble wish to use a bathroom stall or serve their country. They're often shamed and rejected by their families, or, or do you pretend not to know that? Of course. But a man can grow up and decide he's transgender and still have subconsciously absorbed a sense of male entitlement. Parents interrupt their daughters twice as often as they interrupt their sons. And subtle aspects of socialization like that affect everyone who is born male. They think it all revolves around them. So when Martha Plimpton stages an event to protect abortion rights in Texas called A Night of a Thousand Vaginas, she gets attacked on Twitter for being cis-sexist and alienating transgender women who don't have vaginas. God forbid women for whom reproductive rights are a real issue try to come together and fight that battle themselves. And I wanna know how those people born men who insist they're women too, and they have to be included on the battle for reproductive rights, how are they any different than the men in Congress lecturing women on what they may and what we may and may not do with our bodies? What do they know about any of it? Well, you said the fear of getting pregnant is not a real issue for you either. Should you be included? Watch it, you stay away from that subject. It's all right, Curtis. The kind of cheap shot I'd expect from him. I've been trying to get pregnant, yes, but I defend every woman's right to choose. And only some male idiot like you would find that confusing or something to joke about. You and some good old boy senator, I don't see a difference. Well, you always did have trouble with fine distinctions. Is that why you can't distinguish between transgender people and minstrel shows? I am saying the issue of trans people is complicated, and so is drag. Will you really not say what you know and admit that there's an overall trend towards hostility towards women when it comes to drag? Gladly. What the hell? If you will admit an overall trend in feminism toward man-hating and self-righteous humorlessness and, and a puritanical hatred of sex and fun and glitter and spangles and perfume and, and fabulousness and a marked tendency toward homophobia directed at gay men who see through you and call you on all of the above. A distaste towards gay men who caricature women. Who reflect the fabulous potential and also the cattiness of women that you don't want to see. 
who think they're embodying women, except they bring to it a level of testosterone-driven aggression, competitive, schoolyard, little boy meanness that, meanness that no woman has ever felt. And they call that a reflection of femininity. Oh, now, honey, you've got more testosterone-driven aggression in one little finger. Hey, guys, oh, come I... on, take it easy now. Take yeah, it yeah, easy. yeah. Curtis and I are going to have to separate you two. We're going to have to give you a freaking timeout if you don't stop, okay? Aton, down, okay? Down. Notice, Gary, I, I may have twitted her. I may have made a few remarks about our silly theoretical news speak, but I didn't take her on directly until she launched a direct attack on the act after asking to hear you sing a song. Let me, let me try to give her a different perspective uh, about cross-dressing and maybe it'll leave the atmosphere a little less charged than when you two guys decided to get out. Go ahead. Yes, Gary, I'd be glad to see how you see it. Great, thanks. I guess I'd say, well, it doesn't sound like a good idea now for you to come out to the bar tomorrow night and see the act. You're performing uh, Saturday night? I'm scheduled to, yes, but I don't, I don't know if you've got things with your conference. Nothing so far. Or, I don't even know if this is a good idea. But if you came to the bar, you, you'd see some things I'm sure you'd find objectionable. You'd hear jokes you don't like, and you'd see performers you'd just find puerile. I, I mean, here we are in Kansas City, and the Midwest is not like New, New York and New Jersey. Out here, if a man puts on a dress, it's seen as wildly outrageous and the most hilarious thing possible. And it's kind of sad how taboo and naughty people think that is. But over time, they may grow up and they may get more comfortable with how fluid things can be. Being male, being female, I see it as fluid. I see racial differences as a little more fluid now. Maybe everybody's a metaphor for everybody else now. You know, you were talking about race and gender as metaphors. So maybe we can all, you know, have fun and play. I don't think that it's more fluid now because there were minstrel shows back in the day. I think it may be more fluid now because of white people dancing badly to rock and roll for so long that they finally discovered their hips and learned to dance well. Okay, I, I love rock and roll. That's, that's not a minstrel show. Yeah, well, it is and it isn't. You know, according to your definition, it's yeah, cultural appropriation of a black form. You know, like take Elvis, for example. I mean, Aton makes a case. Never mind. But anyhow, what I'm trying to, what I'm saying about the bar is you'd see drag kings as well as queens. You wouldn't see this as a, as a zero sum game, women versus gay men and trans people. It would, you know, you might see all of these people as natural allies, you'd see women who dress up as men, uh, gay and straight women. You'd see women with drag queen best friends who share clothes and makeup tips and gossip. And you, well, you might hear some bad acts, but also some really witty and genuinely good ones. You might see women being empowered and old stereotypes hold, held up and shaken and questioned. And you might see creative, hopeful things. Can only see what she wants to see. 
It's just as you said when she first launched into this stuff. She'd project, she'd project her own inner ugliness on everyone around her. She's far too dried out and rigid to understand playfulness and self-invention. Hey, Tom, tell me this. When we were in high school, why did it piss you off so much to see Italians and others playing Jews all the time in the films? Why can't everyone just invent themselves and play any role? Why can't white actors put on blackface anymore? Or play Asians with eye makeup if it's all about self-invention? I admit I got tired of seeing other people playing Jews because there weren't many roles for Jews and there weren't that many famous Jewish actors. Oh, how about three-dimensional roles for strong women? Are, are there a lot of those? But I would beat up anyone who would recast the HBO film of Angels in America with Al Pacino playing Roy Cohen and Meryl Streep playing Ethel Rosenberg. I wouldn't change a thing about it because they were amazing. And I could handle Marilyn Drag playing an Orthodox rabbi with a beard in that. And I was fine with Pacino playing Shylock and Merchant of Venice. And so the answer is that if you're good, you can get away with it, with appropriation, with trying to channel somebody from the other alien group. That is what my research is about? Appropriation and the perception of the other. Good for you. My point is, if you're bad, if you fail, you deserve to fail. You deserve to fall flat on your face because you took the risk. But if it works, then of course it works. And it's not a minstrel show after all, and you had every right to do it. That Idaho song, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it's not ready for prime time. But I dare you to come out to the bar tomorrow night and hear the songs that Gary has in his act. The songs of ours that we know work. I dare you to dismiss us after that. But if I disagree with the basic premise of what you're doing, then how will what I- What we're doing, what Gary is doing is no different than any other form of art. All art is a drag act. Hell, maybe all art is a minstrel show, unless it's strictly autobiographical. How dare Tolstoy write Anna Karenina? How dare he get inside the head of a woman? He didn't believe women were capable of intellectual thought, actually. He didn't think that that How was something- How dare he do. try? How dare Sophocles write Antigone? How dare young men play her on stage long ago? Or, or Juliet? How dare theater exist as it did for thousands of years? How dare Ibsen write a dollhouse? How dare Virginia Woolf get into the head of Septimus Smith as well as Mrs. Dalloway? Why don't we censor and ban everything except strictly autobiographical nonfiction? Let's eradicate novels. How dare anybody try to capture any part of the human experience they haven't lived personally themselves, huh? Let's stamp out every attempt at empathy and imagination and discovering human universals. Right, Kay? I never said any of that. But writing is different from acting or, or vamping or whatever you call I it. I don't see the difference. If I write for a woman or a black person and the performer is from the group I'm writing for, I'm just using that performer as a ventriloquist dummy, aren't I? For my white male minstrel show. Obviously, it's complicated. When there's a history as distorted as the history of white people appropriating the voices of black people, that's a special situation. Yeah, I don't know. You disagree? James Baldwin would disagree. He said everybody in America should be writing about racial stuff that makes, them, makes us all uncomfortable. Everybody, black and white, should be taking risks. He wrote what he felt he had to write. 
He didn't want to think too much about the politics of what he should be writing. And when he tried to write really political novels, it hurt him. He started out with Go Tell It on a Mountain about a messed up poor family in Harlem, a black family, and black people got mad at him for washing out dirty laundry in public. Then he got confused. Then he confused everybody by writing Giovanni's role. Right there in the 1950s, a black man writes a gay novel and all the characters are European and American white men? <laughs> nah. And the readers and the critics are all going, huh? He freaked them out. And then black writers went after his friend William Styron for writing The Confessions of Nat Turner. Baldwin said, hey, if you don't like Bill Styron's Nat Turner, go write your own. So, so you, you're involved with literature also? Yeah, try not to sound so surprised. What I mean is, I didn't realize you were in academia. I'm not. I'm a landscaper. I have about one year's worth of credits at a community college. That's as far as I got. But Kay has a lot of books on the shelves. And I prowled around and I've read some good stuff. I don't really go in for theory. That's more her thing. But maybe I do agree with her that a writer should be careful. They should think about what they're doing. When they write in the voice of somebody very different. Maybe they should go and do it anyway, but that they first should think about it long and hard. You know, they should be thinking extra careful when it's somebody from a group like women or people of color who have had their voices stolen in the past. Maybe that's all Kay is saying, is that you should think about what you're doing a little harder. No, that's not what Kay is doing. Her mission in life is simple. Annihilate, immolate, eradicate, destroy. That's about as constructive as her criticism gets. You know the movie that always makes me think of you, Aton? The remake of The Stepford Wives. I use it in one of my courses. It's set in a universe that sees all women as a problem. In that film, you have women controlling entertainment, producing all the TV shows, and the shows all degrade men. And a humiliated man from a reality show that Nicole Kidman produces tries to kill her. And her husband, Matthew Brodick, tells her she deserves it, basically. And they move to Stepford. But the whole plot is reduced to a joke. And we're meant to sympathize with bitchy, arch characters we don't like at all. Or the movie can't decide if we should like them. And it can't decide if the Stepford wives are robots or people with microchips in their brains. And we're told that gay relationships are just as likely to go in a Stepford Wives direction as straight ones with the same power dynamics. And it seems that Christopher Walken is in charge, but then it turns out the real villainess is Glenn Close, of course, controlling everything, imposing the retro rules of Stepford on everyone else. This was a bad film that nobody cares about. Why do you? Because, of course, Women are controlling monsters with tremendous power, and there's no need for feminism. It's a giggle and a joke. Like when I was a day camp counselor at 18, and a creepy guy was looking through a peephole into the adult women's changing room, and you thought it was such a joke. You asked if he was hot. You told me to flirt with him. And the Stepford Wives remake is a film that takes violence towards women exactly that seriously. And who made this film? It was produced by Scott Rudden, who's gay, and directed by Frank Oz, who thinks he knows women because he speaks in the voice of Miss Piggy, and was written by Paul Rudnick, who's gay and used to do a movie column in the voice of a woman. So I guess he knows all about women too. And I guess this group of powerful men didn't see the irony in creating a movie in which women have all the power and run 
the in entire entertainment industry and women invent male chauvinist oppression and impose it on themselves. They uh, didn't didn't Paul Rudnick write Sister Act? That was sort of cute. Nuns are a fun kind of drag. Harry Fisher did the rewrite and redeemed it. And, and well, 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 why are you so violently anti-Frank Oz? Leave that poor man alone. He was wonderful as Miss Piggy and Yoda and Cookie Monster. They said and, like, in interviews when they did research for the film, these men were amazed to learn that there actually are hetero men who like to gather in groups and keep women out. They thought they discovered some wild aberration. They didn't see a political need for the Stepford Wives and how a serious form it shows the real situation of women. Well, of course, because a woman wrote it or no. No, wait a minute. Wasn't it Ira Levin? It was Ira Levin exploring something dark in heterosexual men in terms of how they relate to heterosexual women. Maybe playing on women's fear that if they're smart and interesting and talented, none of that matters to the men they're with and the men would rather be with Barbie, a, a lot of them. But it's worth exploring and kudos to Levin for doing it. And also for exploring fears of giving birth to the spawn of Satan, like poor Rosemary. I hate when that happens. So, as Curtis says, you can write about the other. You can get into the head of someone different if you think hard, if you understand the implications, if you're not a jerk about it. It's when thoughtless white males, gay or straight, hey. appropriate the experiences of women or are people of color and hey. think that, hey. what? I'm just curious. Since you say it's ironic these men don't realize they're patriarchal male oppressors, do you have any idea how ridiculous you sound earnestly lecturing us about putting on a minstrel show and going on and on about the concerns of people of color and teaching African-American studies in the first place? I mean, what are you but a big flaming drag act and a tap dancing buck and wing minstrel show with bells on? You know, I, I really do think you need to take it easy here, man. Um, you haven't read her books, you don't know anything about her paper or research or anything Oh, don't at all. worry. Kay's a feminist. She doesn't want a man protecting her. That's patronizing. She can fight her own battle. There's no need to fight any battles. We can try to keep a civil discussion. That's not what Kay wants, is it, Kay? She decided to bring it. She decided to throw down. So tell us, Kay, sweetheart, exactly what business you have talking about Langston and Zora, and what business did you have in high school lecturing me about Motown and Stax Records and how Michael Jackson put the black and white of rock and roll back together with his Thriller album. And please explain why you can't see yourself as the ridiculous, uptight, holier-than-thou hypocrite that you are. I said things are complicated. They are. I teach about race and gender because different races and genders are tangled together in our country's history. I don't write or perform in the voice of a black person. Why even presume to teach gender studies when you hate men and gay men especially? <laughs> Only some gay Some personally, but by extrapolation, you hate all gay Only when I'm around you, Aton. Only right now. Excuse me. I'm going to go lie down. The first panel I'm on is pretty early tomorrow morning and I'll be presenting my jargon-filled bullshit minstrel show paper to an auditorium full of people tomorrow afternoon. A exits.
as it happens, Kay's a hell of a good teacher and a writer. Despite all the theory and the jargon. Yes, I can't keep track of all the terminology and I don't always want to, but she knows what she's saying and she has good things to say. I learned a lot just talking things through with her. Well, it's probably a matter of taste. I guess I'm not as inclined to sit at her feet and learn. I guess what I'm saying is I don't like to see her mocked. But if she can't stand the heat, she should get out of the kitchen. And oh yeah, she just did. But it's even simpler than that. If she can't take it, she shouldn't dish it out. Tell me, Curtis, is that your role here? To give your blessing and make it okay for her to teach courses about black people? My role is to be her husband and to protect her when people are beating up on her. That's a laugh. She was the instigator every step almost every step of the way. And I think we all know she can take care of herself. She tries to seem that way. She tries to be tough, but she's actually pretty fragile. <laughs> fragile, sure. As, as fragile as a Sherman tank, as fragile as the Kraken. Grrr! She loves what she does and she's good at it. There's no need to mock her life work and make her feel like it's shit. There's every need to do that when she's doing the same thing to Gary. He loves what he does, too, and he's good at it. And I won't let him be mocked or pushed around. Yeah, okay, whatever. Good night. Curtis had tips. I... What? Was it something I said? Lights down, end of scene four. Stay tuned for part two on our next episode of the Quarantine Players Podcast. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information about Quarantine Players, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash quarantine players. As Shakespeare said in Julius Caesar, if we do meet again, why, we shall smile. If not, why then, this parting was well made.